Hello there, and welcome to tonight's episode of Down to Sleep. This is the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. If you would like to support the podcast, hear everything first, and get to vote on what book I read next, please do join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash down to sleep. There is also a YouTube channel if you would like to listen to the YouTube version, and that is youtube.com slash down to sleep. But wherever you are listening, and however you are listening, I'm glad you're here. So let's tuck you in, take a nice deep breath, and let's get down to sleep. Two days after this, when Mary opened her eyes, she sat upright in bed immediately and called to Martha. Look at the moor, look at the moor. The rainstorm had ended, and the grey mist and clouds had been swept away in the night by the wind. The wind itself had ceased, and a brilliant, deep blue sky arched high over the moorland. Never, never had Mary dreamed of a sky so blue. In India, skies were hot and blazing. This was of a deep, cool blue, which almost seemed to sparkle like the waters of some lovely bottomless lake. And here and there, high, high in the arched blueness floated small clouds of snow-white fleece. The far-reaching world of the moor itself looked softly blue, instead of gloomy purple-black or awful dreary grey. Aye, said Martha with a cheerful grin, the storm's over for a bit. It does like this at this time of the year. It goes off in a night like it was pretending it had never been here, and never meant to come again. That's because the springtime's on its way. It's a long way off yet, but it's coming. I thought perhaps it always rained or looked dark in England, Mary said. Eh, no, said Martha, sitting up on her heels among her black lead brushes. Now what of the salt? What does that mean? asked Mary seriously. In India, the natives spoke different dialects, which only a few people understood, so she was not surprised when Martha used words she did not know. Martha laughed as she had done the first morning. There now, she said. I've talked broad Yorkshire again like Mrs. Medlock said I mustn't. Now to the sort means nothing of the sort, but it takes so long to say it, Yorkshire's the sunniest place on earth when it's sunny. I told thee that I'd like the moor after a bit. Just wait till you see the gold-coloured gorse blossoms and the blossoms of the broom and the heather flowering. All purple bells and hundreds of butterflies fluttering, bees humming and skylarks soaring up and singing. You'll want to get out on it at sunrise and live out on it all day like Dickunders. Could I ever get there? asked Mary wistfully, looking through her window at the far-off blue. It was so new and big and wonderful and such a heavenly colour. I don't know, answered Martha. Thou's never used thou's legs since thou was born, it seems to me. Thou couldn't walk five mile. It's five mile to our cottage. I should like to see your cottage. Martha stared at her a moment curiously, 
before she took up her polishing brush and began to rub the grate again. She was thinking that the small plain face did not look quite as sour at this moment as it had done the first morning she saw it. It looked just a trifle like little Susan Ann's when she wanted something very much. I'll ask my mother about it, she said. She's one of them that nearly always sees a way to do things. It's my day out today and I'm going home. I am glad. Mrs. Medlock thinks a lot of mother. Perhaps she could talk to her. I like your mother, said Mary. I should think that I did, agreed Martha, polishing away. I've never seen her, said Mary. No, that hasn't, replied Martha. She sat up on her heels again and rubbed the end of her nose with the back of her hand as if puzzled for a moment. But she ended quite positively. Well, she's that sensible and hard-working and good-natured and clean that no one could help liking her whether they'd seen her or not. When I'm going home to her on my day out, I just jump for joy when I'm crossing the moor. I like Dickon, added Mary. And I've never seen him. Well, said Martha stoutly, I've told thee that the very birds likes him, and the rabbits and wild sheep and ponies and the foxes themselves. I wonder, staring at her reflectively, what Dickon would think of thee. He wouldn't like me, said Mary in her stiff, cold little way. No one does. Martha looked reflective again. How does the like the self? she inquired, really quite as if she were curious to know. Mary hesitated a moment and thought it over. Not at all, really, she answered. But I never thought of that before. Martha grinned a little as if at some homely recollection. Mother said that to me once, she said. She was at her wash tub, and I was in a bad temper and talking ill of folk. And she turns round on me, and she says, Thy young vixen now, there thou stands saying, Thou doesn't like this one and thou doesn't like that one. How does thou like thyself? It made me laugh, and it brought me to my senses in a minute. She went away in high spirits as soon as she had given Mary her breakfast. She was going to walk five miles across the moor to the cottage, and she was going to help her mother with the washing and do the week's baking and enjoy herself thoroughly. Mary felt lonelier than ever when she knew she was no longer in the house. She went out into the garden as quickly as possible. The first thing she did was to run round and round the fountain flower garden ten times. She counted the times carefully, and when she had finished, she felt in better spirits. The sunshine made the whole place look different. The high, deep blue sky arched over Misselthwaite, as well as over the moor, and she kept lifting her face and looking up into it trying to imagine what it would be like to lie down on one of the little snow-white clouds and float about. 
She went into the first kitchen garden and found Ben Weatherstaff working there with two other gardeners. The change in the weather seemed to have done him good. He spoke to her of his own accord. Springtime's coming, he said. Cannot the smell it? Mary sniffed and thought she could. I smell something nice and fresh and damp, she said. That's the good rich earth, he answered, digging away. It's in good humour making ready to grow things. It's glad when planting time comes. It's dull in the winter when it's got nought to do. In the flower gardens, out there, things will be stirring down below in the dark. The sun's warming them. He'll see bits of green spikes sticking out of the black earth after a bit. What will they be? asked Mary. Crocuses, snowdrops, daffodillies. Has I never seen them? No, everything's hot and wet and green after the rains in India, said Mary. I think things grow up in a night. These won't grow up in a night, said Weatherstaff. That I'll have to wait for them. They'll pork up a bit higher here, push out a spike more there, and uncurl a leaf this day and another that. You watch them. I'm going to, answered Mary. Very soon she heard the soft rustling flight of wings again, and she knew at once that the robin had come again. He was very pert and lively, and hopped about so close to her feet, and put his head on one side and looked at her so slyly that she asked Ben Weatherstaff a question. Do you think he remembers me? she said. Remembers thee, said Weatherstaff indignantly. He knows every cabbage stump in the gardens, let alone the people. He's never seen a little wench here before, and he's bent on finding out all about thee. No need to try to hide anything from him. A thing's stirring down below in the dark, in that garden where he lives, Mary inquired. What garden? grunted Weatherstaff becoming surly again. The one where the old rose trees are? She could not help asking. She wanted so much to know. Are all the flowers dead? Did some of them come again in the summer? Are there ever any roses? Ask him, said Ben Weatherstaff, hunching his shoulders towards the robin. He's the only one as knows. No one else has seen inside it for ten year. Ten years was a long time, Mary thought. She had been born ten years ago. She walked away, slowly thinking. She had begun to like the garden, just as she had begun to like the robin, and Dickon, and Martha's mother. She was beginning to like Martha, too. That seemed a good many people to like when you were not used to liking. She thought of the robin as one of the people. She went to her walk outside the long, ivy-covered wall, over which she could see the treetops, and the second time she walked up and down. The most interesting 
an exciting thing happened to her. And it was all through Ben Weatherstaff's Robin. She heard a chirp and a twitter. And when she looked at the bare flower bed at her left side, there he was, hopping about, pretending to peck things out of the earth to persuade her that he had not followed her. But she knew. He had followed her. And the surprise so filled her with delight that she almost trembled a little. You do remember me, she cried out. You do. You are prettier than anything else in the world. She chirped and talked and coaxed and he hopped and flirted his tail and twittered. It was as if he were talking. His red waistcoat was like satin, and he puffed his tiny breast out, and was so fine and so grand and so pretty, that it was really as if he were showing her how important, unlike a human person, Robin could be. Mistress Mary forgot that she had ever been contrary in her life, when he allowed her to draw closer and closer to him, and bend down and talk and try to make something like Robin sounds. Oh, to think that he should actually let her come as near to him as that. He knew nothing in the world would make her put out her hand toward him, or startle him in the least tiniest way. He knew it because he was a real person, only nicer than any other person in the world. She was so happy that she scarcely dared to breathe. The flower bed was not quite bare. It was bare of flowers because the perennial plants had been cut down for their winter rest. But there were tall shrubs and low ones which grew together at the back of the bed and as the robin hopped about under them, she saw him hop over a small pile of freshly turned up earth. He stopped on it to look for a worm. The earth had been turned up because a dog had been trying to dig up a mole, and he had scratched quite a deep hole. Mary looked at it, not really knowing why the hole was there. And as she looked, she saw something, almost buried in the newly turned soil. It was something like a ring of rusty iron or brass. And when the robin flew up into a tree nearby, she put out her hand and picked the ring up. It was more than a ring, however. It was an old key which looked as if it had been buried a long time. Mistress Mary stood up and looked at it with an almost frightened face as it hung from her finger. Perhaps it's been buried for ten years, she said in a whisper. Perhaps it's the key to the garden. She looked at the key quite a long time. She turned it over and over and thought about it. As I've said before, she was not a child who had been trained to ask permission or consult her elders about things. 
All she thought about the key was that if it was the key to the closed garden, and she could find out where the door was, she could perhaps open it and see what was inside the walls and what had happened to the old rose trees. It was because it had been shut up so long that she wanted to see it. It seemed as if it must be different from other places, that something strange must have happened to it during ten years. Besides that, if she liked it, she could go into it every day and shut the door behind her. She could make up some play of her own and play it quite alone, because nobody would ever know where she was, but would think the door was still locked and the key buried in the earth. The thought of that pleased her very much. Living as it were, all by herself in a house with a hundred mysteriously closed rooms, and having nothing whatever to do to amuse herself, had set her inactive brain to working, and was actually awakening her imagination. There is no doubt that the fresh, strong, pure air from the moor had a great deal to do with it. Just as it had given her an appetite, and fighting with the wind had stirred her blood, so the same things had stirred her mind. In India she had always been too hot and languid and weak to care much about anything. But in this place, she was beginning to care and to want to do new things. Already she felt less contrary, though she did not know why. She put the key in her pocket and walked up and down her walk. No one but herself ever seemed to come there, so she could walk slowly and look at the wall, or rather at the ivy growing on it. The ivy was the baffling thing. Howsoever carefully she looked, she could see nothing but thickly growing, glossy, dark green leaves. She was very much disappointed. Something of her contrariness came back to her as she paced the walk and looked over it at the treetops inside. It seemed so silly, she said to herself, to be near it and not able to get in. She took the key in her pocket when she went back to the house, and she made up her mind. She would always carry it with her when she went out, so that if she ever should find the hidden door, she would be ready. Mrs. Medlock had allowed Martha to sleep all night at the cottage, but she was back at her work in the morning with cheeks redder than ever and in the best of spirits. I got up at four o'clock, she said. Hey, it was pretty on the moor with the birds getting up and the rabbits scampering. The sun rising. I didn't walk all the way. A man gave me a ride in his car and I did enjoy myself. She was full of stories of the delights of her day out. Her mother had been glad to see her and they had got the baking and washing all out of the way. She had even made each of the children a dough cake with a bit of brown sugar in it. I had them all piping hot when they came in from playing on the moor, 
and the cottage all smelt nice, clean, hot bacon. And there was a good fire, and they just shouted for joy. Our Dickon, he said our cottage was good enough for a king. In the evening they had all sat round the fire. Martha and her mother had sewed patches on torn clothes and mended stockings. Martha had told them about the little girl who had come from India, who had been waited on all her life by what Martha called blacks, until she didn't know how to put on her own stockings. They, they did like to hear about you, said Martha. They wanted to know all about the blacks and the ship you came in. I couldn't tell them enough. Mary reflected a little. I'll tell you a great deal more before your next day out, she said, so that you'll have more to talk about. I dare say they'd like to hear about riding on elephants and camels, and about the officers going to hunt tigers. My word, cried delighted Martha. It would set them clean off their heads. Would they really do that, miss? It'd be the same as a wild beast show like we had in York once. India is quite different from Yorkshire, Mary said slowly, as she thought the matter over. I never thought of that. Did Dickon and your mother like to hear you talk about me? Why, our Dickon's eyes nearly started out of his head. They got that round, answered Martha. But mother, she was put out about your seeming to be all by yourself, like. She said... Hasn't Mr. Craven got no governess for her, nor no nurse? And I said, no, he hasn't. Though Mrs. Medlock says he will when he thinks of it. But she says he mayn't think of it for two or three years. I don't want a governess, said Mary sharply. But Mother says you ought to be learning your book by this time, and you ought to have a woman to look after you. She says, now, Martha, you just think how you'd feel yourself in a big place like that. "'Wandering about all alone and no mother. "'You do your best to cheer her up,' she says, and I said I would. "'Mary gave her a long, steady look. "'You do cheer me up,' she said. "'I like to hear you talk.' "'Presently Martha went out of the room "'and came back with something held in her hands under her apron. "'What does that think?' she said, with a cheerful grin. I brought thee a present. A present? exclaimed Mistress Mary. How could a cottage full of fourteen hungry people give one a present? A man was driving across the moor peddling, Martha explained. And he stopped his car at our door. He had pots and pans and odds and ends, but Mother had no money to buy anything. Just as he was going away, our Elizabeth Ellen called out, Mother, he's got skipping ropes with red and blue handles. And Mother, she calls out quite sudden, Here, stop, mister, how much are they? And he says, tuppence. And Mother, she began fumbling in her pocket, and she says to me, Martha, that's brought me that wages like a good lass, and I've got four places to put every penny. But I'm just going to take tuppence out of it and buy that child a skipping rope. And she bought one, and here it is. She brought it out from under her apron and exhibited it quite proudly. It was a strong, slender rope, with a striped red and blue handle at each end. But Mary Lennox had never seen a skipping rope before. She gazed at it with a mystified expression. 
What is it for? She asked curiously. For? Cried out Martha. Does that mean they've not got skipping ropes in India? For all they've got elephants and tigers and camels. No wonder most of them's black. <laughs> this is what it's for. Just watch me. And she ran into the middle of the room and taking a handle in each hand began to skip and skip and skip while Mary turned in her chair to stare at her and the queer faces in the old portraits seemed to stare at her too and wonder what on earth this common little cottager had the impudence to be doing under their very noses but Martha did not even see them the interest and curiosity in Mistress Mary's face delighted her and she went on skipping and counted as she skipped until she had reached a hundred. I could skip longer than that, she said when she stopped. I've skipped as much as five hundred when I was twelve, but I wasn't as fat then as I am now when I was in practice. Mary got up from her chair, beginning to feel excited herself. It looks nice, she said. Your mother is a kind woman. Do you think I could ever skip like that? You just try it, urged Martha, handing her the skipping rope. You can't skip a hundred at first, but if you practice, you'll mount up. That's what Mother said. She says, nothing will do her more good than a skipping rope. It's the sensiblest toy a child can have. Let her play out in the fresh air, skipping, and it'll stretch her legs and arms and give her some strength in them. It was plain that there was not a great deal of strength in Mistress Mary's arms and legs when she first began to skip. She was not very clever at it, but she liked it so much that she did not want to stop. Put on that things and run and skip out of doors, said Martha. Mother said I must tell you to keep out of doors as much as you could, even when it rains a bit, so as the wrap up warm. Mary put on her coat and hat and took her skipping rope over her arm. She opened the door to go out and then suddenly thought of something and turned back rather slowly. Martha, she said, they were your wages. It was your two pence, really. Thank you, she said it stiffly because she was not used to thanking people or noticing that they did things for her. Thank you, she said, and held out her hand because she did not know what else to do. Martha gave her hand a clumsy little shake, as if she was not accustomed to this sort of thing either. Then she laughed. Thou a queer old womanish thing, she said. If thou'd been our Elizabeth Ellen, thou'd given me a kiss. Mary looked stiffer than ever. Do you want me to kiss you? Martha laughed again. Nay, not me, she answered. If thou was different, perhaps they'd want thyself, but thou isn't. Run off outside and play with thy rope. Mistress Mary felt a little awkward as she went out of the room. Yorkshire people seemed strange, and Martha was always rather a puzzle to her. At first she had disliked her very much, but now she did not, 
The skipping rope was a wonderful thing. She counted and skipped and skipped and counted until her cheeks were quite red and she was more interested than she had ever been since she was born. The sun was shining and a little wind was blowing. Not a rough wind, but one which came in delightful little gusts and brought a fresh scent of newly turned earth with it. She skipped round the fountain garden and up one walk and down another. She skipped at last into the kitchen garden and saw Ben Weatherstaff digging and talking to his robin, which was hopping about him. She skipped down the walk toward him, and he lifted his head and looked at her with a curious expression. She had wondered if he would notice her. She wanted him to see her skip. Well, he exclaimed, upon my word, perhaps there are young un after all. Perhaps thou's got child's blood in thy veins instead of sour buttermilk. Thou's skipped red into thy cheeks as sure as my name's Ben Weatherstaff. I wouldn't have believed that I could do it. I never skipped before, said Mary. I'm just beginning. I can only go up to twenty. Thou keep on, said Ben. Thou shapes well enough at it for a young un that's lived with heathen. Just see how he's watching thee. Jerking his head towards the robin. He followed after thee yesterday. He'll be at it again today. He'll be bound to find out what the skipping rope is. He's never seen one, shaking his head at the bird. Our curiosity'll be the death of thee sometime if that doesn't look sharp. Mary skipped round all the gardens and round the orchard, resting every few minutes. At length she went to her own special walk and made up her mind to try and see if she could skip the whole length of it. It was a good long skip, and she began slowly. But before she had gone halfway down the path, she was so hot and breathless that she was obliged to stop. She did not mind much. She had already counted up to thirty. She stopped with a little laugh of pleasure, and there, lo and behold, was the robin swaying on a long branch of ivy. He had followed her, and he greeted her with a chirp. As Mary had skipped toward him, she felt something heavy in her pocket strike against her at each jump, and when she saw the robin, she laughed again. You showed me where the key was yesterday, she said. You ought to show me the door today, but I don't believe you know. The robin flew from his swinging spray of ivy on to the top of the wall. He opened his beak and sang a loud, lovely trill, merely to show off. Nothing in the world is quite as adorably lovely as a robin when he shows off, and they are nearly always doing it. Mary Lennox had heard a great deal about magic in her eyes' stories, and she always said that what happened almost at that moment was magic. One of the nice little gusts of wind rushed down the walk, and it was a stronger one than the rest. 
It was strong enough to wave the branches of the trees. And it was more than strong enough to sway the trailing sprays of untrimmed ivy hanging from the wall. Mary had stepped close to the robin, and suddenly the gust of wind swung aside some loose ivy trails, and more suddenly still, she jumped toward it and caught it in her hand. This she did, because she had seen something under it. A round knob, which had been covered by the leaves hanging over it. It was the knob of a door. She put her hands under the leaves and began to pull and push them aside. Thick as the ivy hung, it nearly all was a loose and swinging curtain. Though some had crept over wood and iron, Mary's heart began to thump and her hands to shake a little in her delight and excitement. The robin kept singing and twittering away and tilting his head on one side, as if he were as excited as she was. What was this under her hands which was square and made of iron and which her fingers found a hole in? It was the lock of the door, which had been closed ten years. She put her hand in her pocket, drew out the key, and found it fitted the keyhole. She put the key in, and turned it. It took two hands to do it, but it did turn. And then she took a long breath, and looked behind her up the long walk, to see if anyone was coming. No one was coming. No one ever did come, it seemed, and she took another long breath, because she could not help it, and she held back the swinging curtain of ivy, and pushed back the door, which opened slowly, slowly. Then she slipped through it, and shut it behind her, and stood with her back against it looking about her and breathing quite fast with excitement and wonder and delight. She was standing inside the secret garden. It was the sweetest, most mysterious-looking place anyone could imagine. The high walls which shut it in were covered with the leafless stems of climbing roses, which were so thick that they were matted together. Mary Lennox knew they were roses, because she had seen a great many roses in India. All the ground was covered with grass of a wintry brown, and out of it grew clumps of bushes, which were surely rose bushes if they were alive. There were numbers of standard roses which had so spread their branches that they were like little trees. There were other trees in the garden, and one of the things which made the place look strangest and loveliest was that climbing roses had run all over them and swung down long tendrils which made light swaying curtains, and here and there they had caught at each other 
or at a far-reaching branch and had crept from one tree to another and made lovely bridges of themselves. There were neither leaves nor roses on them now, and Mary did not know whether they were dead or alive. But their thin grey or brown branches and sprays looked like a sort of hazy mantle spreading over everything. Walls and trees and even brown grass where they had fallen from their fastenings and run along the ground. It was this hazy tangle from tree to tree which made it all look so mysterious. Mary had thought it must be different from other gardens which had not been left all by themselves so long, and indeed it was different from any other place she had ever seen in her life. How still it is, she whispered. How still. Then she waited a moment and listened at the stillness. The robin who had flown to his treetop was still as all the rest. He did not even flutter his wings. He sat without stirring and looked at Mary. No wonder it is still, she whispered again. I'm the first person who has spoken in here for ten years. She moved away from the door, stepping as softly as if she were afraid of awakening someone. She was glad that there was grass under her feet and that her steps made no sounds. She walked under one of the fairy-like grey arches between the trees and looked up at the sprays and tendrils which formed them. I wonder if they're all quite dead, she said. Is it all a quite dead garden? I wish it wasn't. If she had been Ben Weatherstaff, she could have told whether the wood was alive by looking at it. But she could only see that there were only grey or brown sprays and branches, and none showed any signs of even a tiny leaf bud anywhere. But she was inside the wonderful garden, and she could come through the door under the ivy any time, and she felt as if she had found a world all her own. The sun was shining inside the four walls, and the high arch of blue sky over this particular piece of Misselthwaite seemed even more brilliant and soft than it was over the moor. The robin flew down from his treetop and hopped about or flew after her from one bush to another. He chirped a good deal and had a very busy air, as if he were showing her things. Everything was strange and silent, and she seemed to be hundreds of miles away from anyone. But somehow, she did not feel lonely at all. All that troubled her was her wish that she knew whether all the roses were dead, or if perhaps some of them had lived, and might put out leaves and buds as the weather got warmer. She did not want it to be a quite dead garden. If it were a quite alive garden, how wonderful it would be, and what thousands of roses would grow on every side. Her skipping rope had hung over her arm when she came in, and after she walked about for a while, she thought she would skip round the whole garden, stopping when she wanted to look at things. There seemed to have been grass paths here and there, 
and in one or two corners there were alcoves of evergreen, with stone seats or tall moss-covered flower urns in them. As she came near the second of these alcoves, she stopped skipping. There had once been a flower bed in it, and she thought she saw something sticking out of the black earth. Some sharp little pale green points. She remembered what Ben Weatherstaff had said, and she knelt down to look at them. Yes, they are tiny growing things. They might be crocuses or snowdrops or daffodils, she whispered. She bent very close to them and sniffed the fresh scent of the damp earth. She liked it very much. Perhaps there are some other ones coming up in other places, she said. I will go all over the garden and look. She did not skip, but walked. She bent slowly and kept her eyes on the ground. She looked in the old border beds and among the grass. And after she had gone round, trying to miss nothing, she had found ever so many more sharp pale green points, and she had become quite excited again. It isn't a quite dead garden, she cried out softly to herself. Even if the roses are dead, there are other things alive. She did not know anything about gardening, but the grass seemed so thick in some of the places where the green points were pushing their way through that she thought they did not seem to have room enough to grow. She searched about until she found a rather sharp piece of wood and knelt down and dug and weeded out the weeds and grass until she made nice little clear places around them. Now they look as if they could breathe, she said, after she had finished with the first ones. I am going to do ever so many more. I'll do all I can see. If I haven't time today, I can come tomorrow. She went from place to place, and dug, and weeded, and enjoyed herself so immensely that she was led on from bed to bed into the grass under the trees. The exercise made her so warm that she first threw her coat off and then her hat, and without knowing it she was smiling down onto the grass and the pale green points all the time. The robin was tremendously busy. He was very much pleased to see gardening begun on his own estate. He had often wondered at Ben Weatherstaff where gardening is done, all sorts of delightful things to eat are turned up with the soil. Now here was this new kind of creature, who was not half Ben's size, and yet had had the sense to come into his garden and begin at once. Mistress Mary worked in her garden until it was time to go to her midday dinner. In fact, she was rather late in remembering and when she put on her coat and hat and picked up her skipping rope, she could not believe that she had been working two or three hours. She had been actually happy all the time, and dozens and dozens of the tiny pale green points were to be seen in cleared places. 
looking twice as cheerful as they had looked before, when the grass and weeds had been smothering them. I shall come back this afternoon, she said, looking all round at her new kingdom, speaking to the trees and the rose bushes as if they heard her. Then she ran lightly across the grass, pushed open the slow old door, and slipped through it under the ivy. She had such red cheeks and such bright eyes, and ate such a dinner that Martha was delighted. Two pieces of meat and two helps of rice pudding, she said. Mother'll be pleased when I tell her what skipping rope's done for thee. In the course of her digging with her pointed stick, Mistress Mary had found herself digging up a sort of white root, rather like an onion. She had put it back in its place and patted the earth carefully down on it. And just now, she wondered if Martha could tell her what it was. Martha, she said, what are those white roots that look like onions? They're bulbs, answered Martha. Lots of spring flowers grow from them. Very little ones are snowdrops and crocuses, and the big ones are narcissuses and jonquils and daffodowndillies. The biggest of all is lilies and purple flags. Eh, they're nice. Dickon's got a whole lot of them planted in our bit of garden. Does Dickon know all about them? asked Mary, a new idea taking possession of her. Our Dickon can make a flower grow out of a brick walk. Mother says he just whispers things out the ground. Do bulbs live a long time? Would they live years and years if no one helped them? inquired Mary anxiously. They're things as helps themselves, said Martha. That's why poor folk can afford to have them. If you don't trouble them, most of them will work away underground for a lifetime and spread out and have little uns. There's a place in the park woods here where there's snowdrops by thousands. They're the prettiest sight in Yorkshire when the spring comes. No one knows when they were first planted. I wish the spring was here now, said Mary. I want to see all the things that grow in England. She had finished her dinner and gone to her favourite seat on the hearthrug. I wish... I wish I had a little spade, she said. Whatever does thou want a spade for? asked Martha, laughing. Art thou going to take to digging? I must tell mother that too. Mary looked at the fire and pondered a little. She must be careful if she meant to keep her secret kingdom. She wasn't doing any harm, but if Mr. Craven found out about the open door, he would be fearfully angry and get a new key and lock it up forevermore. She really could not bear that. This is such a big, lonely place, she said slowly, as if she were turning matters over in her mind. The house is lonely, and the park is lonely, and the gardens are lonely. So many places seem shut up. I never did many things in India, but there were more people to look at, natives and soldiers marching by, and sometimes bands playing, and my ayah told me stories. There's no one to talk to here except you and Ben Weatherstaff. And you have to do your work, 
and Ben Weatherstaff won't speak to me often. I thought if I had a little spade I could dig somewhere as he does. I might make a little garden if he would give me some seeds. Martha's face quite lighted up. There now, she exclaimed. If that wasn't one of the things Mother said. She says, there's such a lot of room in that big place. Why don't they give her a bit for herself? Even if she doesn't plant nothing but parsley and radishes. She'd dig and rake away and be right down happy over it. Them's was the very words she said. Were they? said Mary. How many things she knows, doesn't she? Hey, said Martha. It's like she says. A woman as brings up twelve children learns something besides her ABC. Children's as good as arithmetic to set you finding out things. How much would a spade cost? A little one, Mary asked. Well, was Martha's reflective answer. At Thwaite Village, there's a shop or so, and I saw little garden sets with a spade and a rake and a fork all tied together for two shillings. And they were stout enough to work with, too. I've got more than that in my purse, said Mary. Mrs. Morrison gave me five shillings, and Mrs. Medlock gave me some money from Mr. Craven. Did he remember thee that much? exclaimed Martha. Mrs. Medlock said I have a shilling a week to spend. She gives me one every Saturday. I didn't know what to spend it on. My word, that's riches, said Martha. I can buy anything in the world that wants. The rent of our cottage is only on three pence, and it's like pulling eye teeth to get it. Now I've just thought of something, putting her hands on her hips. What? said Mary eagerly. In the shop at Thwaite, they sell packages of flower seeds for a penny each. And our Dickon, he knows which is the prettiest ones, how to make them grow. He walks over to Thwaite many a day just for the fun of it. Does thou know how to print letters? I know how to write, Mary answered. Martha shook her head. Our Dickon can only read printing. If that could print, we could write a letter to him, ask him to go and buy the garden tools and the seeds at the same time. Oh, you're a good girl, Mary cried. You are, really. I didn't know you were so nice. I know I can print letters if I try. Let's ask Mrs. Medlock for a pen and ink and some paper. I got some of my own, said Martha. I bought them so I could print a bit of a letter to Mother of a Sunday. I'll go get it. She ran out of the room and Mary stood by the fire and twisted her thin little hands together with sheer pleasure. If I have a spade, she whispered, I can make the earth nice and soft and dig up weeds. If I have seeds and can make flowers grow, the garden won't be dead at all. It will come alive. She did not go out again that afternoon, because when Martha returned with her pen and ink and paper, she was obliged to clear the table and carry the plates and dishes downstairs. And when she got into the kitchen, Mrs. Medlock was there and told her to do something. So Mary waited for what seemed to her a long time before she came back. Then it was a serious piece of work to write to Dickon. Mary had been taught very little because her governess had disliked her too much to stay with her. She could not spell particularly well, but she found that she could print letters when she tried. This was the letter Martha dictated to her. 
My dear Dickon, this comes hoping to find you well, as it leaves me at present. Miss Mary has plenty of money. Then will you go to Thwaite and buy her some flower seeds and a set of garden tools to make a flower bed. Pick the prettiest ones, and easy to grow because she has never done it before and lived in India, which is different. Give my love to Mother and every one of you. Miss Mary is going to tell me a lot more, so that on my next day out, you can hear about elephants and camels and gentlemen going hunting lions and tigers. Your loving sister, Martha Phoebe Sowerby. We'll put the money in the envelope and I'll get the butcher boy to take it in his cart. He's a great friend of Dickon's, said Martha. How shall I get the things when Dickon buys them? He'll bring them to you himself. He'll like to walk over this way. Oh, exclaimed Mary. Then I shall see him. I never thought I should see Dickon. Does thou want to see him? asked Martha suddenly, for Mary had looked so pleased. Yes, I do. I never saw a boy foxes and crows loved. I want to see him very much. Martha gave a little start, as if she remembered something. Now to think, she broke out. To think of me forgetting that there, and I thought I was going to tell you first thing this morning. I asked Mother, and she said she'd ask Mrs. Medlock her own self. Do you mean, Mary began, what I said Tuesday? Ask her if she might be driven over to our cottage some day and have a bit of mother's hot oat cake and butter in a glass of milk. It seemed as if all the interesting things were happening in one day. To think of going over the moor in the daylight and when the sky was blue. To think of going into the cottage which held twelve children. Does she think Mrs. Medlock would let me go? She asked quite anxiously. Aye, she thinks she would. She knows what a tidy woman mother is and how clean she keeps cottage. If I went, I should see your mother as well as Dickon, said Mary, thinking it over, liking the idea very much. She doesn't seem to be like the mothers in India. Her work in the garden and the excitement of the afternoon ended by making her feel quiet and thoughtful. Martha stayed with her until tea time, but they sat in comfortable quiet and talked very little. But just before Martha went downstairs for the tea tray, Mary asked a question. Martha, she said, has the scullery maid had the toothache again today? Martha certainly started slightly. What makes thee ask that? she said. Because... When I waited so long for you to come back, I opened the door and walked down the corridor to see if you were coming, and I heard that far-off crying again, just as we heard it the other night. There isn't a wind today, so you see it couldn't have been the wind. Eh, said Martha restlessly, thou mustn't go walking about in corridors and listening. Mr. Craven would be that there angry. There's no knowing what you do. I wasn't listening, said Mary. I was just waiting for you, and I heard it. That's three times. 
my word. Uh, there's Mrs. Medlock's bell, said Martha, and she almost ran out of the room. It's the strangest house anyone ever lived in, said Mary drowsily, as she dropped her head on the cushioned seat of the armchair near her. Fresh air and digging and skipping rope had made her feel so comfortably tired that she fell asleep. The sun shone down for nearly a week on the secret garden. The secret garden was what Mary called it when she was thinking of it. She liked the name, and she liked still more the feeling that when its beautiful old walls shut her in, no one knew where she was. It seemed almost like being shut out of the world in some fairy place. The few books she had read and liked had been fairy storybooks, and she had read of secret gardens in some of the stories. Sometimes people went to sleep in them for a hundred years, which she had thought must be rather stupid. She had no intention of going to sleep, and in fact, she was becoming wider awake every day which passed at Misselthwaite. She was beginning to like to be out of doors. She no longer hated the wind, but enjoyed it. She could run faster and longer, and she could skip up to a hundred. The bulbs in the secret garden must have been astonished. Such nice clear places were made round them that they had all the breathing space they wanted. And really, if Mistress Mary had known it, they began to cheer up under the dark earth and work tremendously. The sun could get at them and warm them, and when the rain came down it could reach them at once. So they began to feel very much alive. Mary was an odd, determined little person, and now she had something interesting to be determined about. She was very much absorbed indeed. She worked and dug and pulled up weeds steadily, only becoming more pleased with her work every hour instead of tiring of it. It seemed to her like a fascinating sort of play. She found many more of the sprouting pale green points than she had ever hoped to find. They seemed to be starting up everywhere, and each day she was sure she found tiny new ones, some so tiny that they barely peeped above the earth. There were so many that she remembered what Martha had said about the snowdrops by the thousands and about bulbs spreading and making new ones. These had been left to themselves for ten years, and perhaps they had spread, like the snowdrops, into thousands. She wondered how long it would be before they showed that they were flowers. Sometimes she stopped digging to look at the garden, and tried to imagine what it would be like when it was covered with thousands of lovely things in bloom. During that week of sunshine, she became more intimate with Ben Weatherstaff. 
She surprised him several times by seeming to start up beside him, as if she sprang out of the earth. The truth was that she was afraid that he would pick up his tools and go away if he saw her coming. So she always walked toward him as silently as possible. But in fact, he did not object to her as strongly as he had at first. Perhaps he was secretly rather flattered by her evident desire for his elderly company. Then, also, she was more civil than she had been. He did not know that when she first saw him, she spoke to him as she would have spoken to a native, and had not known that a cross, sturdy old Yorkshire man was not accustomed to salaam to his masters and be merely commanded by them to do things. Ah, like the robin, he said to her one morning when he lifted his head and saw her standing by him. I never knows when I shall see thee or which side thou'll come from. He's friends with me now, said Mary. That's like him, snapped Ben Weatherstaff, making up to the women folk just for vanity and flightiness. There's nothing he wouldn't do for the sake of showing off and flirting his tail feathers. He's as full of pride as an egg's full of meat. He very seldom talked much, and sometimes did not even answer Mary's questions except by a grunt. But this morning, he said more than usual. He stood up and rested one hobnailed boot on the top of his spade while he looked her over. How long's thou been here? He jerked out. I think it's about a month, she answered. Thou's beginning to do Misselthwaite credit, he said. Thou's a bit fatter than thou was, and that's not quite so yellow. Thou's looked quite young plucked crow when the first come into garden. Thinks I to myself I never set eyes on an uglier, sourer-faced young'un. Mary was not vain, as she had never thought much of her looks. She was not greatly disturbed. I know I'm fatter, she said. My stockings are getting tighter. They used to make wrinkles. There's the robin, Ben Weatherstaff. There indeed was the robin. And she thought he looked nicer than ever. His red waistcoat was as glossy as satin, and he flirted his wings and tail and tilted his head and hopped about with all sorts of lively graces. He seemed determined to make Ben Weatherstaff admire him. But Ben was sarcastic. Aye, there thou art, he said. Thou can put up with me for a bit sometimes when thou has got no one better. Thou has been reddening up thy waistcoat and polishing thy feathers this two weeks. I know what thou's up to. Thou has caught in some bold young madam somewhere, telling thy lies to her about being the finest cock robin on Mistlemore, and ready to fight all the rest of them. Oh, look at him, exclaimed Mary. The robin was evidently in a fascinating, bold mood. He hopped closer and closer, and looked at Ben Weatherstaff more and more engagingly. He flew on to the nearest currant bush, and tilted his head, and sang a little song right at him. Thou thinks thou'll get me over by doing that, said Ben, wrinkling his face up in such a way that 
Mary felt sure he was trying not to look pleased. Tha thinks no one can stand out against thee. That's what tha thinks. The robin spread his wings. Mary could scarcely believe her eyes. He flew right up to the handle of Ben Weatherstaff's spade and alighted on the top of it. Then the old man's face wrinkled itself slowly into a new expression. He stood still, as if he were afraid to breathe, as if he would not have stirred for the world, lest his robin should start away. He spoke quite in a whisper. Well, I'm danked, he said, as softly as if he were saying something quite different. Thar does know how to get at a chap, thar does. Thar's fair unearthly, thar's so knowing. And he stood without stirring, almost without drawing his breath, until the robin gave another flirt to his wings and flew away. Then he stood looking at the handle of the spade, as if there might be magic in it. And then he began to dig again, and said nothing for several minutes. But because he kept breaking into a slow grin now and then, Mary was not afraid to talk to him. Have you a garden of your own? she asked. No, I'm bachelor and lodge with Martin at the gate. If you had one, said Mary, what would you plant? Cabbages, tears, and onions. But if you wanted to make a flower garden, persisted Mary, what would you plant? Bulbs, sweet-smelling things, but mostly roses. Mary's face lighted up. Do you like roses? she said. Ben Weatherstaff rooted up a weed and threw it aside before he answered. Well, yes I do. I was learned that by a young lady I was gardener to. She had a lot in a place that she was fond of, and she loved them like they was children, or robins. I've seen her bend over and kiss him. He dragged out another weed and scowled at it. That were as much as ten year ago. Where is she now? asked Mary, much interested. Heaven, he answered, and drove his spade deep into the soil, according to what Parson says. What happened to the roses? Mary asked again, more interested than ever. They was left to themselves. Mary was becoming quite excited. Did they quite die? Do roses quite die when they're left to themselves? She ventured. Well, I'd got to like them. And I liked her. And she liked them. Ben Weatherstaff admitted reluctantly. Once or twice a year I'd go and work on them a bit. Prune them and dig about the roots. They run wild, but they was in rich soil, so some of them lived. When they have no leaves, and look grey and brown and dry, how can you tell whether they're dead or alive? inquired Mary. Wait till spring gets at them. 
Wait till the sun shines on the rain and the rain falls on the sunshine. And then I'll find out. How? How? cried Mary, forgetting to be careful. Look along the twigs and branches, and if thou see a bit of brown lump swelling here and there, watch it after the warm rain and see what happens. He stopped suddenly and looked curiously at her eager face. Why dost thou care so much about roses and such all of a sudden? he demanded. Mistress Mary felt her face grow red. She was almost afraid to answer. I... I want to play that... that I have a garden of my own, she stammered. There is nothing for me to do. I have nothing and no one. Well, said Ben Weatherstaff slowly as he watched her. That's true. That hasn't. He said it in such an odd way that Mary wondered if he was actually a little sorry for her. She had never felt sorry for herself. She had only felt tired and cross because she disliked people and things so much. But now the world seemed to be changing and getting nicer. If no one found out about the secret garden, she should enjoy herself always. She stayed with him for ten or fifteen minutes longer and asked him as many questions as she dared. He answered every one of them in his queer, grunting way, and he did not seem really cross and did not pick up his spade and leave her. He said something about roses just as she was going away, and it reminded her of the ones he had said he had been fond of. Do you go and see those other roses now? she asked. Not been this year. My rheumatics has made me too stiff in joints. He said it in his grumbling voice, and then quite suddenly he seemed to get angry with her, though she did not see why he should. Now look here, he said sharply. Does that ask so many questions? Ah, the worst wench for asking questions I've ever come across. Get thee gone and play thee. I've done talking for today. And he said it so crossly that she knew there was not the least use in staying another minute. She went skipping slowly down the outside walk, thinking him over and saying to herself that, queer as it was, here was another person whom she liked in spite of his crossness. She liked old Ben Weatherstaff. Yes, she did like him. She always wanted to try to make him talk to her. Also, she began to believe that he knew everything in the world about flowers. There was a laurel-hedged walk which curved round the secret garden and ended at a gate which opened into a wood in the park. She thought she would slip round this walk and look into the wood and see if there were any rabbits hopping about. She enjoyed the skipping very much, and when she reached the little gate, she opened it and went through, because she heard a low, peculiar whistling sound, 
and wanted to find out what it was. It was a very strange thing indeed. She quite caught her breath as she stopped to look at it. A boy was sitting under a tree, with his back against it, playing on a rough wooden pipe. He was a funny-looking boy, about twelve. He looked very clean, and his nose turned up, and his cheeks were as red as poppies, and never had Mistress Mary seen such round and such blue eyes in any boy's face. And on the trunk of the tree he leaned against, a brown squirrel was clinging and watching him. And from behind a bush nearby, a cock pheasant was delicately stretching his neck to peep out. And quite near him were two rabbits, sitting up and sniffing with tremulous noses. And actually, it appeared as if they were all drawing near to watch him and listen to the strange low little call his pipe seemed to make. When he saw Mary, he held up his hand and spoke to her in a voice almost as low as and rather like his piping. Don't thou move, he said. It'd frighten. Mary remained motionless. He stopped playing his pipe and began to rise from the ground. He moved so slowly that it scarcely seemed as though he were moving at all. But at last he stood on his feet, and then the squirrel scampered back up into the branches of the tree. The pheasant withdrew his head, and the rabbits dropped on all fours and began to hop away, though not at all as if they were frightened. I'm Dickon, the boy said. I know that, Miss Mary. Then Mary realized that somehow she had known at first that he was Dickon. Who else could have been charming rabbits and pheasants as the natives charm snakes in India? He had a wide, red, curving mouth, and his smile spread all over his face. I got up slow, he explained, because if thou makes a quick move, it startles him. A body has to move gentle and speak low when wild things is about. He did not speak to her as if they had never seen each other before, but as if he knew her quite well. Mary knew nothing about boys, and she spoke to him a little stiffly because she felt rather shy. Did you get Martha's letter? she asked. He nodded his curly, rust-coloured head. That's why I come. He stooped to pick up something which had been lying on the ground beside him when he piped. I've got the garden tools. There's a little spade and rake and fork and hoe. Eh? They're good uns. There's a trowel too. And the woman in the shop threw in a packet of white poppy and one of blue larkspur when I bought the other seeds. Will you show the seeds to me? Mary said. She wished she could talk as he did. His speech was so quick and easy. It sounded as if he liked her, and was not the least afraid she would not like him, though he was only a common moor boy, in patched clothes and with a funny face. 
and a rough, rusty red head. As she came closer to him, she noticed that there was a clean, fresh scent of heather and grass and leaves about him, almost as if he were made of them. She liked it very much, and when she looked into his funny face with the red cheeks and round blue eyes, she forgot that she had felt shy. Let us sit down on this log and look at them, she said. They sat down, and he took a clumsy little brown paper package out of his coat pocket. He untied the string, and inside there were ever so many neater and smaller packages, with a picture of a flower on each one. There's a lot of mignonettes and poppies, he said. Mignonette's the sweetest smelling things as grows, and it'll grow wherever you cast it, same as poppies will. Them as'll come up and bloom if you just whistle to them. Them's the nicest of all. He stopped and turned his head quickly, his poppy-cheeked face lighting up. Where's that robin as is calling us, he said. The chirp came from a thick holly bush, bright with scarlet berries, and Mary thought she knew whose it was. Is it really calling us? she asked. Aye, said Dickon, as if it was the most natural thing in the world. He's calling someone he's friends with. That's same as saying, here I am, look at me, I want a bit of a chat. There he is in bush. Whose is he? He's Ben Weatherstaff's, but I think he knows me a little, answered Mary. Aye, he knows thee said Dickon in his low voice again. And he likes thee. He's took thee on. He'll tell me all about thee in a minute. He moved quite close to the bush, with the slow movement Mary had noticed before. Then he made a sound, almost like the robin's own twitter. The robin listened a few seconds, intently, and then answered quite as if he were replying to a question. Hi, he's a friend of yours, chuckled Dickon. Do you think he is? cried Mary eagerly. She did so want to know. Do you think he really likes me? He wouldn't come near thee if he didn't. Birds is rare choosers, and a robin can flout a body worse than a man. See, he's making up to thee now. Cannot thou see a chap he's saying? And it really seemed as if it must be true. He so sidled and twittered and tilted as he hopped on his bush. Do you understand everything birds say? said Mary. Dickon's grin spread until he seemed all wide red curving mouth, and he rubbed his rough head. I think I do, and they think I do, he said. I've lived on the moor with them so long. I've watched them break shell and Come out and fledge and learn to fly and begin to sing. Till I think I'm one of them. Sometimes I think perhaps I'm a bird. Or a fox. Or a rabbit. Or a squirrel. Or a fox. Or even a beetle. And I don't know it. He laughed and came back to the log. And began to talk about the flower seeds again. He told her what they looked like when they were flowers. He told her how to plant them, and watch them, and feed and water them. See here, he said suddenly, turning round to look at her. 
I'll plant them for thee myself. Where is thy garden? Mary's thin hands clutched each other as they lay on her lap. She did not know what to say, so for a whole minute she said nothing. She had never thought of this. She felt miserable, and she felt as if she went red and then pale. Thar's got a bit of garden, hasn't thou? Dickon said. It was true that she had turned red and then pale. Dickon saw her do it. And as she still said nothing, he began to be puzzled. Wouldn't they give thee a bit? he asked. Hasn't thou got any yet? She held her hands tighter and turned her eyes toward him. I don't know anything about boys, she said slowly. Could you keep a secret? If I told you one, it's a great secret. I don't know what I should do if anyone found it out. I believe I should die. She said the last sentence quite fiercely. Dickon looked more puzzled than ever, and rubbed his hand over his rough head again. But he answered quite good-humouredly. I'm keeping secrets all the time, he said. If I couldn't keep secrets from the other lads, secrets about foxes' cobs and birds' nests and wild things' holes, they'd be not safe on the moor. I, I can keep secrets. Mistress Mary did not mean to put out her hand and clutch his sleeve, but she did it. I've stolen a garden, she said very fast. It isn't mine. It isn't anybody's. Nobody wants it. Nobody cares for it. Nobody ever goes into it. Perhaps everything is dead in it already. I don't know. She began to feel hot and as contrary as she had ever felt in her life. I don't care. I don't care. Nobody has any right to take it from me when I care about it and they don't. They're letting it die, all shut in by itself. She ended passionately, and she threw her arms over her face and burst out crying. Poor little Mistress Mary. Dickens' curious blue eyes grew rounder and rounder. Hey, he said, drawing his exclamation out slowly. The way he did it meant both wonder and sympathy. I've nothing to do, said Mary. Nothing belongs to me. I found it myself, and I got into it myself. I was only just like the robin, and they wouldn't take it from the robin. Where is it? asked Dickon in a dropped voice. Mistress Mary got up from the log at once. She knew she felt contrary again, and obstinate, and she did not care at all. She was imperious and Indian, at the same time hot and sorrowful. Come with me, and I'll show you, she said. She led him round the laurel path, and to the walk where the ivy grew so thickly. Dickon followed her with a queer, almost pitying look on his face. He felt as if he were being led to look at some strange bird's nest and must move softly. When she stepped to the wall and 
lifted the hanging ivy, he started. There was a door, and Mary pushed it slowly open and they passed in together. And then Mary stood and waved her hand round defiantly. It's this, she said. It's a secret garden, and I'm the only one in the world who wants it to be alive. Dickon looked round and round about it, and round and round again. Hey, he almost whispered. It is a queer, pretty place. It's like as if a body was in a dream. For two or three minutes he stood looking round him, while Mary watched him, and then he began to walk about softly, even more lightly than Mary had walked the first time she had found herself inside the four walls. His eyes seemed to be taking in everything. The grey trees, with the grey creepers climbing over them, hanging from their branches, tangle on the walls and among the grass, the evergreen alcoves with the stone seats and tall flower urns standing in them. Never thought I'd see this place, he said at last in a whisper. Did you know about it? asked Mary. She had spoken aloud and he made a sign to her. We must talk though, he said, or someone will hear us. I wonder what's to do in here. Oh, I forgot, said Mary, feeling frightened and putting her hand quickly against her mouth. Did you know about the garden? She asked again when she had recovered herself. Dickon nodded. Martha told me there was one, as no one ever went inside. Oss used to wonder what it was like. He stopped and looked round at the lovely grey tangle about him, and his round eyes looked queerly happy. Eh, the nests as'll be here come springtime. It'd be the safest nesting place in England. No one never coming near in tangles and trees and roses to build him. I wonder all the birds on the moor don't build here. Mistress Mary put her hand on his arm again without knowing it. Will there be roses? she whispered. Can you tell? I thought perhaps they were all dead. Eh, no, not them, not all of them, he answered. Look here. He stepped over to the nearest tree. An old, old one, with grey lichen all over its bark, but upholding a curtain of tangled sprays and branches. He took a thick knife out of his pocket and opened one of its blades. There's lots of dead wood as ought to be cut out, he said. And there's lots of old wood, but it made some new last year. This here's a new bit. And he touched a shoot which looked brownish green instead of hard, dry grey. Mary touched it herself in an eager, reverent way. That one, she said. Is that one quite alive? Quite. Dickon curved his wide, smiling mouth. It's as wick as you or me, he said. 
and Mary remembered that Martha had told her that wick meant alive or lively. I'm glad it's wick, she cried out in her whisper. I want them all to be wick. Let us go round the garden and count how many wick ones there are. She quite panted with eagerness, and Dickon was as eager as she was. They went from tree to tree, and from bush to bush. Dickon carried his knife in his hand and showed her things which she thought were wonderful. They've run wild, he said, but the strongest ones as fair thrived on it. The delicatest ones has died out. But the others has growed and growed and spread and spread till there's a wonder. See here. And he pulled down a thick, grey, dry-looking branch. A body might think this was dead wood, but I don't believe it is. Down to the root. I'll cut it low down and see. He knelt and with his knife cut the lifeless-looking branch not far above the earth. There, he said exultantly, I told thee so. There's green in that wood yet. Look at it. Mary was down on her knees before he spoke, gazing with all her might. When it looks a bit greenish and juicy like that, it's wick, he explained. When the inside is dry and breaks easy, like this here piece I've cut off, it's done for. There's a big root here as all this live wood sprung out of. And if the old wood's cut off and it's dug round and took care of, there'll be... He stopped and lifted his face to look up at the climbing and hanging sprays above him. There'll be a fountain of roses here this summer. They went from bush to bush and from tree to tree. He was very strong and clever with his knife and knew how to cut the dry and dead wood away and could tell when an unpromising bough or twig had still green life in it. In the course of half an hour, Mary thought she could tell too. And when he cut through a lifeless-looking branch, she would cry out joyfully under her breath when she caught sight of the least shade of moist green. The spade and hoe and fork were very useful. He showed her how to use the fork while he dug about roots with the spade and stirred the earth to let the air in. They were working industriously round one of the biggest standard roses when he caught sight of something, which made him utter an exclamation of surprise. Why? he cried, pointing to the grass a few feet away. Who did that there? It was one of Mary's own little clearings round the pale green points. I did it, said Mary. Why, I thought that I didn't know nothing about gardening, he exclaimed. I don't, she answered. But they were so little, and the grass was so thick and strong, and they looked as if they had no room to breathe. So I made a place for them. I don't even know what they are. Dickon went and knelt down by them, 
smiling his wide smile. Thou was right, he said. A gardener couldn't have told thee better. They'll grow now like Jack's beanstalk. They're crocuses and snowdrops, and these here is narcissuses turning to another patch. And here's daffydowndillies. Hey, they'll be a sight. He ran from one clearing to another. Thou has done a lot of work for such a little wench, he said, looking her over. I'm growing fatter, said Mary, and I'm growing stronger. I used always to be tired. When I dig, I'm not tired at all. I like to smell the earth when it's turned up. It's rare good for thee, he said, nodding his head. There's naught as nice as the smell of good clean earth, except the smell of fresh growing things when the rain falls on him. I get out on the moor many a day when it's raining and I lie under a bush and I listen to the soft swish of drops on the heather and I just sniff and sniff. My nose end fair quivers like a rabbit's mother says. Do you never catch cold? inquired Mary, gazing at him wonderingly. She had never seen such a funny boy, or such a nice one. Not me, he said, grinning. I never catched cold since I was born. I wasn't brought up nesh enough. I've chased about the moor in all weathers, same as rabbits does. Mother says I've sniffed up too much fresh air for twelve years to ever get to sniffing with cold. I'm as tough as a white thorn knobstick. He was working all the time he was talking, and Mary was following him and helping him with her fork or the trowel. There's a lot of work to do here, he said once, looking about quite exultantly. Will you come again and help me to do it? Mary begged. I'm sure I can help too. I can dig and pull up weeds and do whatever you tell me. Oh, do come, Dickon. I'll come every day if thou wants me. Rain or shine, he answered stoutly. It's the best fun I've ever had in my life. Shot in here and waking up a garden. If you will come, said Mary. If you will help me to make it alive, I'll... I don't know what I'll do, she ended helplessly. What could you do for a boy like that? I'll tell thee what thou'll do, said Dickon, with his happy grin. Thou'll get fat, and thou'll get hungry as a young fox, and thou'll learn how to talk to the robin same as I do. We'll have a lot of fun. He began to walk about, looking up in the trees and at the walls and bushes with a thoughtful expression. I wouldn't want to make it look like a gardener's garden, all clipped and spick and span, would you? It's nicer like this, with things running wild and swinging, catching hold of each other. Don't let us make it tidy, said Mary anxiously. It wouldn't seem like a secret garden if it was tidy. Dickon stood rubbing his rusty red head with a rather puzzled look. It's a secret garden, sure enough, he said. But seems like someone besides the robin must have been in it since it was shut up ten years ago. But the door was locked and the key was buried, said Mary. No one could get in. That's true, he answered, 
It's a queer place. Seems to me as if there'd been a bit of pruning done here and there. Later than ten years ago. But how could it have been done, said Mary. He was examining a branch of a standard rose, and he shook his head. Aye, how could it, he murmured, with the door locked and the key buried. Mistress Mary always felt that, however many years she lived, she should never forget that first morning when her garden began to grow. Of course, it did seem to begin to grow for her that morning, when Dickon began to clear places to plant seeds. She remembered what Basil had sung at her when he wanted to tease her. Are there any flowers that look like bells? she inquired. Lilies of the validos, he answered, digging away with the trowel. And there's Canterbury bells and Campanulas. Let's plant some, said Mary. There's lilies of the valley here already. I saw them. They'll have grown too close and we'll have to separate them, but there's plenty. The other ones take two years to bloom from a seed, but I can bring you some bits of plants from our cottage garden. Why dost thou want them? Then Mary told him about Basil and his brothers and sisters in India, of how she had hated them, and of their calling her Mistress Mary quite contrary. They used to dance round and sing at me. They sang, Mistress Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and marigolds all in a row. I just remembered it and it made me wonder if there were really flowers like silver bells. She frowned a little and gave her trowel a rather spiteful dig into the earth. I wasn't as contrary as they were. But Dickon laughed. Hey, he said, and as he crumbled the rich black soil, she saw he was sniffing up the scent of it. Doesn't seem to be no need for no one to be contrary when there's flowers and such like, and such lots of friendly wild things running about, making homes for themselves, or building nests and singing and whistling, does there? Mary, kneeling by him, holding the seeds, looked at him and stopped frowning. Dickon, she said, you are as nice as Martha said you were. I like you, and you make the fifth person. I never thought I should like five people. Dickon sat up on his heels as Martha did when she was polishing the grate. He did look funny and delightful, Mary thought, with his round blue eyes and red cheeks and happy-looking turned-up nose. Only five folks as thou likes, he said. Who's the other four? Your mother and Martha. Mary checked them off on her fingers. And the robin and Ben Weatherstaff. Dickon laughed so that he was obliged to stifle the sound by putting his arm over his mouth. I know thou thinks I'm a queer lad, he said. But I think thou art the queerest little lass I ever saw. 
Then Mary did a strange thing. She leaned forward and asked him a question she had never dreamed of asking anyone before. And she tried to ask it in Yorkshire, because that was his language. And in India, a native was always pleased if you knew his speech. Does thou like me? she said. Eh, he answered heartily. That I does. I likes thee wonderful, and so does the robin, I do believe. That's two then, said Mary. That's two for me. And then they began to work harder than ever, and more joyfully. Mary was startled and sorry when she heard the big clock in the courtyard strike the hour of her midday dinner. I shall have to go, she said mournfully. And you'll have to go too, won't you? Dickon grinned. My dinner's easy to carry about with me. Mother always lets me put a bit of something in my pocket. He picked up his coat from the grass and brought out of a pocket a lumpy little bundle tied up in a quite clean, coarse blue and white handkerchief. It held two thick pieces of bread with a slice of something laid between them. It's oftenest naught but bread, he said, but I got a fine slice of fat bacon with it today. Mary thought it looked a queer dinner, but he seemed ready to enjoy it. Run on and get thy victuals, he said. I'll be done with mine first. I'll get some more work done before I start back home. He sat down with his back against a tree. I'll call the robin up, he said, and give him the rind of the bacon to peck at. They likes a bit of fat wonderful. Mary could scarcely bear to leave him. Suddenly it seemed as if he might be a sort of wood fairy who might be gone when she came into the garden again. He seemed too good to be true. She went slowly, halfway to the door in the wall, and she stopped and went back. Whatever happens, you... you never would tell, she said. His poppy-coloured cheeks were distended with his first big bite of bread and bacon, but he managed to smile encouragingly. If thou was a mussel thrush and showed me where thy nest was, does thou think I'd tell anyone? Not me. Thou art as safe as a mistle thrush. And she was quite sure she was. And that is where we close the book tonight, as that is the end of the chapter, and a perfect place to put a pin in the secret garden for now. I think that was just the most wholesome and lovely chapter of those two in the garden together. Can't wait to see what happens next. Until next time, thank you for being here, and good night. <laughs>